Thanks for joining us here at Belgium Community Church. Our current series is called 167. It's a look at the book of James on what faith looks like beyond Sunday. When I was 22, I was in seminary and I had a class. I was actually in seminary twice. You guys have heard some of that story. But I was in a class and the professor who was from Mexico had a class that half of the students were from Korea. And he was talking to us about some concept, and I don't remember what it was, but he said, he, he started talking about how what he's noticed since he'd been in the United States was that we had this concept that a lot of countries don't have. And he asked the Korean students, he said, do you guys have like a word or a category for compartmentalizing? And they were like, no, we don't, we don't really have, we don't have a word for this. And so he began talking to them. They, they don't, the Korean students didn't have, and a lot of countries around the world don't have this word, a word compartmentalize, to separate things. And he said, you students here from the United States, you're really, you're used to that. Like everybody asks you to put your life into little boxes. It's like those lunch trays or cafeteria trays or the things that you get your kids so that the peach juice doesn't mix with the green beans and they don't like that. Some adults now use them too. I don't, I don't want to uh, make you feel bad if you use those. But we have this word for compartmentalizing, but we can do that with our whole lives. We can start to separate all sorts of things out and go, well, this belongs in this category, and then my personal life belongs here, and my hobbies go here, and Jesus and my spiritual life go over here. I was thinking about that story this week because we're starting a series called 167. We're starting a look at the book of James, which is really a call to say, no, don't compartmentalize yourself. We can easily say, well, we have our church hour here. We might say, well, I, I read my Bible in the morning and that goes here. But what about all of the other hours that we have during the week? What about all of those other places that we go? What, maybe if you're a kid, you go, what is it being in church? Maybe what is Bible class at my Christian school? What does that have to do with all the other things that I do? The swimming and the playing in the summer, the sledding down hills in the winter. If you're an adult, it's like, what does church have to do with my work aside from the idea that maybe I'm supposed to pass out tracts? Maybe I'm supposed to speak up for Jesus where appropriate. We're starting a series that really is looking at the book of James where James, God through the book of James, wants to blow up those categories in our lives so that we don't say, oh, well, we've got our Christian life and we've got the rest of our lives. What is what does our faith have to do with every day? So go ahead and turn with me to the book of James. James was the, there were lots of James. It was a common name at the time, but this James was Jesus' brother, which I can't believe he didn't put that in the, the introduction to the book. Like, that seems like the ultimate ace, you know, like James, Jesus' brother. You know, Jesus' older brother, Jesus' younger brother. It would seem like like the ultimate wild card that would win in any debate. Hey, I, I grew up with Jesus. I know. But James was the brother of Jesus, and he, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the most influential church. He was called Camel Knees. That was his nickname because he spent so much time in prayer that his knees became like rough and calloused and looked like a camel's foot uh, or a camel's knees. And James wrote a letter to the Jewish Christians who had been scattered out from Jerusalem. And he wrote it just 13 years after Jesus died, was raised, and then ascended back into heaven. 
And so this is like the earliest written document that we have after Jesus' death. So James, the leader of the church, the brother of Jesus, is writing to Jewish Christians who have been scattered out of Jerusalem because Paul and his friends and the other Pharisees were attacking the, the Jewish Christians. And so they all had to flee. So what do they need to know? They can't go back to the temple and listen to James preach there. So he writes them a letter 13 years later to, to lay out for them, this is what it's going to mean for you to live as a Christian. This is what it's going to mean for you to live as a Christian day after day, week after week, without a special category of life compartmentalized into the Jesus category and the everything else category. What we're going to find here as we look at this series we begin to see what faith looks like every day. We're going to see in chapter 1 that what does it mean to follow Jesus 168 hours a week? It means that we focus on the reward, the power, and the process of following Jesus. You see, the Christian life is not meant just to pass out tracts, just to pray for people, or maybe pray over your lunch in the lunchroom at work. What does it mean to follow Jesus moment by moment? It means that moment by moment we begin to focus on the reward for the Christian life, the power of following, for following Jesus, and the process of what following Jesus looks like. I want to show you these three actions. The first we see in verses 2 through 18 is consider the rewards of following Jesus in every trial. James jumps straight into it. Verse 2 says, I'm sorry, verse 1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribe scattered among the nations, Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. God, I pray as we open your word that you will make it clear what it is that you have out there for us. Lord, give us eyes to see moment by moment the rewards for following Jesus, the power that you give us process of change that you make in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This first action that we see as we follow Jesus moment by moment is to consider the rewards of following Jesus in every trial. See, verse 1 says, consider, or I'm sorry, verse 2 says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. He, he just jumps straight into it with these Jewish Christians that are living in distant lands where they didn't want to live, and it's because they're following Jesus that they had to flee for their, from their homes. And he says, how are you going to live for Jesus moment by moment, 168 hours a week, by fixing your eyes on the rewards for following Jesus, even in trials? And then he begins to, and, and he says, consider in all various trials. I, I love that he says in various kinds of trials, because it's not just consider it when, when somebody's killing you for being a Christian. Which for you and I would go, well, that kind of puts this in a different category because so far my life hasn't been threatened. But James is going to start laying out the kinds of trials that you and I face, the kinds of trials where we need wisdom, where we're facing temptation, the kind of temptation where we're facing poverty or wealth. And he says, but in any kind of trial, consider it pure joy because your eyes are fixed on the reward. The two rewards that he lays out in verses 2 through 18 is the reward of maturity, and the reward of the crown of life. There in verse 3, the testing of your faith, those trials produce perseverance. And 
Perseverance finishes its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The reward of going through trials is that we get perseverance. And when we get perseverance and we persevere in trials, then we get the reward of maturity. We begin to look like Jesus. And so when you and I get encounter trials of various kinds, what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to go, you know what? Yes, this is hard. And as Jesus works perseverance in my life, he is going to be working out maturity in my life. And we fix our eyes and say maturity is worth it. It is a worthwhile reward to be mature. Not only that, but he says that, skipping on down, he says, blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, this is verse 12, having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so here in the book of James, in chapter 1, we're supposed to fix our eyes on the reward of maturity and this crown of life that comes. We don't just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, good things might come from this. Oh, no. Actually, can we begin to fix our eyes on those as prizes worth persevering to get? He doesn't just say, hey, fix your eyes on the rewards. Then he starts walking through. Here's what that looks like. Verse 5 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, that's a trial that I can connect with. Lots of times where I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go. I don't know how to live this out. James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds, especially wisdom. What are you going to do when you need wisdom? This is what it means to live that out. Ask, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and is unstable in all that they do. So he starts out with, fix your eyes on the reward of maturity. And then he says, this is what it looks like when you face the trial of needing wisdom. Not only that, verse 9, he says, this is what it's like to face the trial of either poverty or wealth. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. So not only, as he said, consider it joy when you face the trial of wisdom. Consider it joy when you face the trial of poverty or riches. What about temptation? The, the, temp the trial that you and I face moment by moment, day by day. Verse 12 says, Blessed is one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we may, might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. So then when facing temptation, he says, don't, don't focus simply on the, the sin. It's actually the desire that gives birth to sin and the sin that gives birth to death. How are we going to focus? How are we going to consider it pure joy when we face these things? He begins to say, no, it's actually 
God's character that upholds these things. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. This call to consider the rewards of following Jesus when needing wisdom, when facing poverty and wealth, when facing temptation. We end up seeing that in the life of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 11 says that consider him, consider him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Like that's, this is the normal thing in the Christian life is to fix our eyes on the reward. And Hebrews 11 says that's what Jesus did. Jesus fixed his eyes on the reward that was set before him and endured the cross, despising the shame. So this isn't just something that we're supposed to do. We're actually walking with Jesus who has done this for us and walks with us. And so what trial are you enduring right now? Maybe it's one of these, wisdom. The need for wisdom. Dealing with poverty or wealth. Dealing with temptation that feels out of control. The call of James 1 says, consider the rewards of following Jesus. This isn't just a list of rules that you're supposed to follow and things you're not supposed to do. It's actually instead a prize that's set out before you. Will you look at the prize and not just at the trial? So the call is to fix our eyes on the reward, not just the ending of trials, because we're going to face more and more trials, but can we train ourselves to have eyes fixed on the prize of the crown of life? Eyes that are fixed on the prize of maturity, saying, I want maturity more than I want ease, more than I want the ends of trials. I want the crown of life. I want to be like Jesus. I want to join Him. The second action that we see in this to following Jesus 168 hours per week is that we are called to tap into the power for the Christian life 167 hours per week. Verses 19 through 25 lay out what this power is. Verse 19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Verse 19 is where it gets really personal and we kind of start to cringe. James gets really personal at that moment when he starts listing things like being quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. But you see, embedded in these verses is the power for living the Christian life. It shows up two times here. Verse 21 says, Get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. He doesn't say, get rid of all moral filth to save yourself. He doesn't say, get rid of all of the evil that is so prevalent in the world that's around you, which can save you. He says, humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Then again, when we jump down, he says, In verse 25, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, 
not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it. They will be blessed in what they do. Here is this word-focused power for the Christian life. Lots of people will tell you lots of things that are the secrets to life, but here in James, he says, if we want righteousness, this goal of being righteous like God has called us, see it in verse 20, the righteousness that God desires, the way that that happens is to humbly accept the word planted in you and to look intently into the law, the perfect law that gives freedom. Here he's got this word focus idea. He's telling the people, righteousness comes from the outside, not from something that you can do on the inside. We can easily make the mistake of looking at the book of James, like Martin Luther did, and say, this doesn't sound like the gospel. There's nothing here about righteousness coming from God. But no, the book of James says the thing that can save you is the word of God that comes to us, the perfect law of God that gives freedom. So we have to go, James this sounds very different than what Jesus said. How is this different? You see, the, the difference is that James has a different audience than Jesus did. You see, Jesus was most often dealing with self-righteous Pharisees that say, God loves me because I followed all of the rules. And Jesus is like, no, you've on the outside followed the rules, but your hearts are far from God. You want nothing to do with him, and you're just trying to manipulate him and get his blessings. That was, that was what Jesus was doing when he was calling out these Pharisees to say, hey, I've never done anything wrong. And Jesus is trying to get them to look at their hearts and say, no, actually, you need a righteousness that can come in and purify both your deeds and your hearts. And James is writing to people that have already come to Jesus for salvation, that have said, you know what, we cannot save ourselves with the law from the outside. So James is saying, guys, you must continue to go to that power source. You must continually accept the word planted in you. Look intently at the perfect law that gives freedom. Jesus is saying, you guys are looking at the law to save you and you want nothing to do with God. And James is saying, guys, don't miss the fact that God uses his word in your life to produce fruit from the inside. I was reading a book recently. And the author said that in all of the inventions over the last 200 years that have really changed the world, we could, I mean, the last 10 years alone, 15 years alone, we could point to all sorts of technological innovations that seem to be groundbreaking. The one that is the most spectacular invention that's really come to the, the, height, the height of technological progress is the way that our power grid works. You, see, you and I just go and plug things in and things work. You know, we've just gotten used to the fact that it's a, a kind of a tragedy or an emergency when the internet and the power in our houses goes out. But it's really a technological marvel and this masterful move that has allowed them to contract with power plants far away, get it to hum along at this perfect frequency of 60 frequencies. It doesn't go down, it doesn't go up. They can predict and know this is how much people are going to use. Let's make sure it's there constantly all the time. It's this technological marvel that we just take for granted as if it's no big deal. We see power lines running all over the place. It does us no good to have this technological marvel running all over our properties, running all over our houses, running all over our communities. If we never end up using it. If we have land that has power lines running across it, but no way to access it, this power grid that's a marvel does us no good. This passage is telling us 
It does you no good to try and live the Christian life, but to never accept the Word of God deeply planted into your hearts because that's what can save you, what can change your life. That is the thing that can change those 168 hours per week. So it'd be nice if there was some other secret, some other book you could read, some practice that you need to go through. James says, guys, you need righteousness that comes from the outside and it's the Word of God planted deeply in your heart that will produce it. So if we want to follow Jesus 168 hours per week, it's not a matter of, can I go and pass out more tracts? Can I go and share the gospel more times? Can I pray for more people? Can I wear enough t-shirts? Can I put enough stickers on my car? No, it's actually, will I let the Word of God be planted deeply in my heart? That's what it means to follow Jesus 168 hours per week. So for some of you, you go, that's something that I get the Word one hour a week. I go to church on Sunday and that's about it. And so the way to tap into the power of God 168 hours a week just begin to take 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, early in the day, late in the day, and say, God, I'm going to read some uh, a chapter. I'm going to read a series of verses. I'm going to read a paragraph, and I'm going to meditate on it and say, God, what is true here? How is this the power that I need for today, for this week? How, do I, how is this going to change my life for this week? I wish there was a, some kind of fancy secret some product that you could buy. But the book of James tells us that if we do not tap into the power of the Word of God planted in our hearts, if we do not look intently at it, then everything else is lost and worthless. The third action to following Jesus beyond Sunday is to pay attention to the process of the Christian life. Verse 26 and 27. Tell us to pay attention to the process of the Christian life. Verse 26 says, Those who consider themselves religious or spiritual and yet do not keep a tight ring on their tongue deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religion that, the God our fa- that God our Father accepts as pure and flawless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Read on their own, these verses are brutal. He talks about worthless religion, worthless spirituality, stuff that God considers trash. But we have to pay attention that in the book of James, in this chapter 1, there is this continual focus on process. There is trials, there is perseverance, and there is maturity. There is desire, there is sin, and there is death. And now we get and we see that the word planted showing up in deeds is what is valuable. We can read these and just focus on the end and go, oh, God wants this valuable thing of visiting orphans and widows. Wants it that comes from the word that is planted in our hearts into deeds that, that are produced from that. And that is where valuable spirituality and religion come from. That's the thing that God wants. And so we should look at our tongues. Many of us, most of us, should look at our tongues and say, if you went off of my tongue alone, my religion is worth but rather than focusing on how do I rein in my tongue better, I actually need the Word of God deeply planted in my heart so that I speak better to my wife and my kids. We look at our lives and we say, God wouldn't consider my religion pure and faultless because I don't have any concern for orphans and widows. I don't have any concern for those that are in distress. The process of the Christian life is to look at those things and say, God, I need your Word to save me and to produce fruit on the, from the inside out. 
not to come in from the outside like a Pharisee and say, let me manipulate the situation so that God will consider my religion worth something. You see, it's, a, it's this, it's a warning sign when we look at our lives and we look at our tongues and we look at the ways that we treat the unprotected that should drive us to the word that can save us. Not that should drive us to ourselves to save ourselves. So our tongues and our actions should cause us to return to the source. Not to try and become the source for ourselves. David Powlinson died this last year. And the way he describes the Christian life is based on Jeremiah 17. This picture of a, of a tree. that you, you see, a tree with good roots produces good fruit. And a tree with bad roots produces bad fruit. We can look at a tree that's not producing fruit and say, well, we can make it look better for a period of time by stapling on fruit, taping that to the branches so that it looks okay for a little while. But anybody who looks deeply is going to know that the bad roots are producing no fruit even though we've made the tree look good for a little bit. And so the book of James should cause us to look at our lives and say, if we are alarmed at the fruit of our tongues and our actions, it should cause us to say, God, give me deep and good roots from your word because I want to bear fruit in my life. God, I want to love the orphans and widows. God, I, I want to speak carefully and kindly rather than stapling on fruit by visiting nursing homes, by adopting children in some sense of trying to please God. Instead, can we have the word planted deeply into us so that we adopt kids, so that we visit orphans and widows because that's the kind of people that God has made us to be. So when you read James chapter 26, or verse 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, does this alarm you? Does this, this cause you to say, there's something interrupting the process of growth in my life. God, save me. You're on the right track. When I told my wife we were going to be going through the book of James, she kind of just expressed the skepticism, I think, that most of us that are familiar with the book have. Because James can just feel like such this great burden. Like, look at all the things that I don't do. Thank you, James. That's the last thing that I needed to know this week. I think that if, if we read the book of James and we do not feel guilt, then we've actually made a mistake and we've read it wrong. And we should read it again. If this sermon is convicting for you, imagine what it's like to prepare this sermon on Monday and Tuesday and the rest of the week. Hear your words to your wife and kids. God, you're going to have to save me. Because I'm supposed to preach a passage that talks about worthless religion and here I am with a mean and loose tongue. God, can you save me? This passage should call all, cause all of us to say, my religion is worthless. What can be done? I'm reminded of Isaiah chapter 45. Isaiah chapter 45, God says, I am the source of all your righteousness and power. So James should cause us to say, God, can you be the source of righteousness that I don't have? God, can you be the source of power in my life that I do not have? How can that be? Well, we've already seen that in Hebrews chapter 11 that Jesus is the one who considered the reward in, worth enough to give up his own life for sinners. Jesus is the one who day after day would go off secretly in private for the power to live the way that God has called him to live, to commune with his Father. Jesus, the very Word of God, died in our place 
Jesus is the one who endured trials, found maturity, and yet still ended up dying in the place of those whose desires resulted in sin. So this passage can become good news for us who are willing to forsake our sin and take Jesus. You see, James 1 is very clear that righteousness comes from the outside. We need righteousness to come from the outside to us. If you're here and you say, I want to know that for sure. The story of the Bible is that God made the world and he made it good. That Adam and Eve lived the life, I'm sorry, were made to be little kings under God. He said, no, we want nothing to do with that. We'll live our own ways. We'll be our own kings. We will have our own power for our own lives and we will make growth happen on our own. Instead of leaving us as God's enemies, the Bible says that Jesus lived the life that we should live, died the death that we should die, and rose again for us so that he can be the source of our righteousness and power. And so that James can be this call to say, hey, fix your eyes on the rewards. Tap into the power for the Christian life in the word and pay attention to the process of growth so that when you see bad fruit, you go and say, God, give me good roots. Imagine what that looks like in your own life as that begins to take root, when 168 hours a week, you have this reward in front of you that says, yes, this week is hard. There are trials, trials in my marriage, trials at work. There are trials with my young children, with my adult children. There is so much heartache in the culture around me, but I am fixing my eyes on the maturity and crown of life that Jesus has promised to those who love him. I have the power to live for Jesus today in my work because his word has been planted deep in my heart. And that is what's producing good fruit in my life. Imagine how different that is than the top-down, let's put guilt and pressure from the outside to make people be impressed and to try and impress God. Imagine what that looks like with somebody who says, hey, there's, there is fruit bubbling up from the inside of my life. My eyes are fixed on those rewards. So now I can speak kindly. I can love the orphan and the widow. I can keep myself unstained by the world because God has given me his righteousness from the outside. Not so I can somehow improve and impress him. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are concerned about every hour in our lives. I thank you that you've given us your word and a righteousness that comes from the outside. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining us for our series called 167. Please connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and BelgiumChurch.com.